0: Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog training professionals and dog enthusiasts, where we discuss training, behavior, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning, exploring, and questioning each other's ideas, as well as our own, so we can become better at what we do. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session.
1: what's going on recording got it yeah
2: yeah we're recording we're I'm on Recording. you're good
1: uh it's on thursdays my wife has uh like a daycare day so we'll come and bring their dogs and they run around in our three acres and get crazy and five o'clock is the pickup time and so there's a lot of commotion around here so that's what's going on right now and then my old female endy i let her out and she likes to guard the yard so people coming <laughs> and going, and she just sat on the fence.
2: This is my house. <laughs> oh man, that's pretty gnarly.
1: They went in both sides. I bulk both the radius and the ulna, and it was like a complete, you know, fracture—not out of the skin, but inside. So complete separation, and then plates and screws. So. Uh-huh
2: what do you, what did you do that? What, <laughs> like,
1: what, what's
2: going on? What were you doing? Was, Is it a fun story or are you doing something stupid like walking upstairs?
1: Yeah. <laughs> my, my wife says it's a good story. I think it's a terrible story. Oh, Anthony, <laughs> I told you, right? Yeah. Like, you I, yeah. I
0: said, you need to come up with a better story. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's,
1: oh, that was my feelings on it, but, but maybe it's good enough. I was the, this shirt that I'm wearing actually, I was printing some t-shirts or preparing to print some t-shirts at my buddy's shop. He's got, an automatic screen printing press and uh, the machine was warming up. No shirts were on it yet to be printed. And when you print t-shirts, if you're printing multiple colors, we weren't doing this, but if you're printing multiple colors, you know, you have to adhere the first color to the fabric through heat. Mm -hmm. And so instead of taking the shirt off and running it through a big heater, you can insert a mobile heater at one place along the machine and it's, and it's heavy and it just sits there. And so the little table that you put a shirt on to be printed then moves along and it goes underneath this heater, zaps the first color, and then on you go. And somehow my arm was in the way of the table going, and then the heater that was next to it. So it broke my arm somehow. the heater. Yeah. <laughs> that part was totally foggy to me. I have no, like, I can't remember... So yeah. you didn't even get a
2: tattoo on your arm after all this? You didn't get no. like a nice Oh, well, I got one on my print. print.
1: I got one on my finger.
2: <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh,
0: Elder.
1: Elder. Yeah. <laughs> first first ink I've got on my whole body. I just put one right on my fucking finger. I had the dude like <laughs> draw it on there just without even putting a like anything i was like just draw it just do it and then you so. proceeded
2: to just break the rest of the arm that was good
1: well the arm was broken <laughs>
2: Oh, okay well, the oh, yeah, arm yeah. was broken before <laughs> yeah. Yeah, might as, well. Might as well. then i had a,
1: i fought my arm out of the machine it was like uh you know you just act when things happen i a lot of yeah. folks said like what did you do did you just freak out or pause it was like i went right into action i got my arm out i knew it was broke right away uh like when something traumatic happens um like people say, like a lot of thoughts flash into your brain. Like some people say my life flashed before my eyes. And it wasn't that extreme, but certainly like a lot of shit was going through my mind. Like, how is this going to affect me long-term? Like, is it poking through the skin? Like, how am I going to train dogs after this? Well, I'll be able to hold a leash and do that one thing that I can normally do. right <laughs> now. Like, So vivid, like really clear, the clearest thinking I've had in a long time while I'm moving into action to get my arm unseized from this machine. And it was, this heat hood was 200 degrees. So I got like burns on my hand too when it happened but hey guys i got my arm i'll be back there you go
2: so do you feel reborn now i mean rejuvenated you had your life flash by like those last thoughts now it's like your chance
1: yeah i don't know if it's like that like some second coming <laughs> myself certainly an appreciation for um you know like you see people walking around that have forever injuries yeah yeah for sure and so like when i see that um uh, I just really sympathize with that. And I have been, I've got a young Malinois that I got to play with. You know, I can do my food work and stuff. And she's a little bit different than the last few males that I raised. She's not as into the food. She just kind of wants to fight and bite shit. And like, she gets frustrated at some point with the food work and I can, I know how to push that work and I know how to get what I want, but it just doesn't seem like it's for her. So I really need play right now is what I feel with her. And uh, the playing is hard with one hand.
2: Well, you got an arm sleeve. You got a sleeve on. <laughs> I was just gonna uh, say that. <laughs> uh, so you're that's good. part of the trouble, Vinny.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's part of the trouble, man. I'm trying to deter from biting this and on the toy. Yeah. No, this is this what's is real.
2: all the plan. This is all the plan. <laughs>
1: so I'm learning tons of stuff about, like being limited physically, and a lot of appreciation for people that have to deal with that all their lives.
2: So. Yeah, you really notice how much you take things for granted, even just yeah. simple stuff. You know.
1: Yeah. and like you I, th- I see it with you guys I watch your training like we're so in our bodies when we train and the physical part of it like the physical side of it is so important it's like I would I would do quite fine I think if I didn't have words really because of how much I like to embody the physical side of training and so to have that removed a little bit has been challenging
0: mm-hmm. yeah I have a client that's blind and she like I've been working with her and her dog for a while and it's so fascinating because like, I really, it really made me have a different outlook on a lot of things. And mm. she so like she doesn't give a shit. Like she'll joke around about, about her blindness and everything. And, and like, she's like, whoops, yep. Sorry. Didn't see that. You know, like just these little, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, but like, you take it, you take it for granted. And then like, when I watch her, and then when I watch the change that she's had with this dog who, like, we didn't even know if it was going to work out. I mean, it's so interesting to see the dynamic. But just her, just loss of sight is so, so interesting. I don't know. I really don't know how to explain it. But it's just so interesting to, like, be there with her and watch the things that she's able to do. Yeah. Even though yeah. she can't see, you know, I mean, yeah. it's very interesting. Yeah.
1: I love that stuff. Like, you could put yourself in their position and or try to, and just appreciate how they move through life and what their reality is. You know, is. it's
0: funny you say that. Mm-hmm. I, I actually haven't, I, I don't think I've ever, I haven't said to this to anyone yet. Um, oh, oh no, nah. <laughs> no, not that it's bad. <laughs> I've, I've actually, because I I've had to really, this is a learning curve because I've never worked with someone who is blind mm. and I've actually many times when I'm trying to coach her and I realize hmm, there's a struggle here. I've actually just sat there and like, closed my eyes and figure out, all right, like, what does this look like to her? Like, what is she, wow. like, what does she feel? Because the biggest thing I've learned from her is the feel aspect. Like we've had to teach the dog to really um, lean into her a lot for certain, like, so she knows where he is and she doesn't trip and all that, but uh, it's really, I don't know. It's just very unique because I I've never really thought of it that way, I guess, before, if that makes sense. So to sit there
1: been forced to, yeah. 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 It's It's, really, I
0: don't know.
1: Juicy stuff. Yeah. I like it.
0: I was going to say I had
2: a similar experience, but with working with blind dogs Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, realizing how much, I'm using my body to kind of help the dog along. And I was like, Oh wait, you can't see that at all. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> you, you can't really see that. Um, and then almost similar dealing with like physical, physical touch, noise, um, because that vi- visual aspect was not
1: there. What about and so the, other, the other senses are heightened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You could be, you could say that's an advantage of losing one sense as you lean on the other ones harder. And, uh, but also where you might have to be a bit careful too.
0: What about deaf dogs? I always find that one to be interesting because I'm always talking to them, thinking that they're listening and, you know, they're <laughs> listening. They can see the, the the things that you're doing with your body, you know, but <laughs> you forget sometimes that, whoops, you, you didn't hear that marker right there.
1: <laughs> so- just this constant head tilting. <laughs> <laughs> How far are you two from each other?
0: About uh, an hour 10 minutes, hour 15, something like that. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. And we then both seen in a long time though. Annalise keeps saying to me, like, Oh yeah, didn't Vinny tell you that? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I haven't seen Vinny in months.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, do both of you go and participate in training no. with her?
0: No, I'm in a different little like sports class. But it's just like a little sports class on Monday nights.
1: Yeah, with Annalise. Mm-hmm. And then Vinny, what are you doing with your guy? Where are you getting I'm, to? A group? Where am I getting to? What? A, a group. Oh
2: yeah, so I am in. I'm with Annalise, yep. Genesis, Mondio, so I yep. meet up with her a few times a week.
1: Yeah, that's close for you.
2: It's about an hour.
1: Yeah, I mean, Which people pretty good. Parts- yeah, people
0: drive yeah. much farther. So
2: no, yeah. I'm like for me, an hour is that's very
0: doable. Yeah. So yeah, you
1: guys are in good hands, man. She's she's sharp and experienced, so I'm happy for you guys. Oh yeah. Does she have a decoy out there or is she doing the decoy work?
2: Kellen. I don't know if you know Kellen, but mm. uh yeah, he's he's the decoy that I'm uh, working with. He does French ring. Yeah. So um he does French ring with his his dogs. Um but he does the decoy work also for Annalise and I. Yeah. A few other a few other members.
1: Cool. Are you learning some decoy work yourself?
2: I'm putting the suit on. Yeah. yeah <laughs> keep going. Cool. On. I'm yeah. putting the suit on. Yeah, I bought a suit a couple of years ago. And uh, you know, it's like when they need me, I'm putting it on. Yeah. But I'm okay. very, very, very new. Like I could count on, you know, two hands how many times I've done it. But it's it's interesting. Yeah. Su- super interesting. Um, having that suit on and seeing the way the dogs look at you, <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely the first time I was like, Ooh, especially the, the dogs that look you in the eyes instead yeah. of uh, the parts they're biting. <laughs> yeah. That was a little unsettling. You know, if I have the suit on and you're looking at my leg, I'm like, that's cool. But there's those dogs that they look you right in the face.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that, totally that, unnerving. Yeah.
2: That makes me a little nervous. Also, I'm a, I'm on the shorter side, so if the dog is healing with me on like um before before an escape and the dog's head is like you know like right near my belly button like right in the crotch (laughs) area and I'm like I'm scared to pretend I'm gonna run away from you
1: (laughs) a lot of those suits are a little short short on the (laughs) midsection so you can't like take off earnestly with like an arm pump because it exposes your ribs
2: yeah Uh, no yeah yeah keep
1: Um, keep going I don't know how old you are but I know for myself, like my best decoying days are certainly behind me. It's kind of a young man's game. If you're getting into it and you want to pursue it. Yeah. I feel like
2: I'm a little old to start. I'm like 34. So yeah.
0: Not bad. That's not bad. It's all all right. right. I was
2: doing a lot of jujitsu before that. So it's like, that's my way of transitioning out i guess do a little bit less jujitsu and now i'm doing this it's like can i find a normal hobby like pottery or yoga or something
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah you're primed for it i there's a few the few dogs in my career decoying dogs that stick out were ones that would look me in the eyes and you never knew <laughs> where they were going to bite you. And the look in the eyes was just menacing. It is just kind of like, I wish that suit wasn't there. Cause I'd go right for your jugular. And it's only because I've been forced to oblige these rules that I'm going to bite the suit at all. You motherfucker. And it just feels like kind of <laughs> scary. Stuff. A dog named Yorick he's passed now, but he, he belonged to a dude named Brian Cristan. This is like 15 years ago. And when I met him, I was just getting in the suit. The dog was probably five or six. He had to ring uh, two or three on him, and it was one of the first dogs I was learning with. But I was all eager to be in the suit, like at a short distance, throw anything at me. I'm, I want to learn, tell me what to do. I could probably do it. I was fairly good in my body, but that dog always threw me for a loop. And so he would come down to Donna Mates in Wisconsin because he lived in Minnesota and quite often to train. And at one point, I wondered why he liked coming down there so much and working with like a new decoy that didn't know what he was doing. But I came to find out that nobody else would catch his dog anymore because (laughs) it's brutal. He was a savage. So I'm naive. I'm like, send him. I need to to work dogs. But it made sense. And I'm like, nobody wants to catch this goddamn dog. He scares the shit out of me for sure. (laughs) But anyway, old Yurik, bless his heart. All right, fellas, what you want to rap about besides the good stuff we currently are.
0: I know. I know what I want to talk about with you. I wanted to you and I spoke in the spring when we last saw each other about uh, Bob Bailey and the jackpotting stuff. So I wanted to chat about that a little. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, I figured we'd kind of jump into that and then, you know, who knows what rabbit hole will take us. I don't know.
1: Yeah. So I had known about. Bob Bailey for a lot of years and appreciated the things that he had brought to animal training, particularly him and the Braylands. When he got out of UCLA, he moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and he got a job with the Braylands who were training animals for things. And then, uh, you know, he became who he is today, kind of the Yoda, I think, of animal behavior. A lot of times people say the Yoda of dog training, um, if we're specializing it to our animal. So I was aware of him. I knew of like concepts and and things that they were doing that we get from him in dog training. And I appreciated that. And then I went to a seminar in Arkansas and I had no idea that he was going to be there. This was um, last November. So I was going to see a buddy present and then a couple other people that I had never met or seen before. And so it was, it's cool, right? Like, you guys, I'm sure do this for yourselves too, but it, for me, at least a couple times a year, I have to go and do something educational for myself. And I found that hard to do for a small period of time, because maybe if you get a little bit of um, notoriety, like I made some resources for Leerberg and then some people knew who I was and um, whatever way they felt about it, it, maybe it felt a little harder just to go places and just, you know, be incognito in a sense and just take something in. And I'm I'm over that now. It's actually it's it's fine. It's easy to do. There's a lot of people with notoriety, and and we're all just kind of gathering around and sharing. But if you guys don't do that for yourselves, make sure to do it once in <laughs> a while. Catch some educational opportunities and just divorce yourself from your own practice and what you're doing, and go watch somebody else. So that's that's great, or maybe even not, and take in some information and weigh it against the things that you have. So anyway, this was an exciting opportunity for me to do that. And it was in something that I'm not practiced in or haven't done in a lot of years, which was um, odor detection work, so odor detection. And a guy named uh, Simon Prince was there, and he's um, not, not from the U.S., and he uh, and Bob Bailey have had a working relationship for a lot of years. So over where Simon is from, he was working with the police and military. He was a police officer formerly, and then he started training dogs for the military. Had caught on to Bob Bailey early on. And then they had hired him on to help with some pretty serious projects that they were doing. So they've got this lovely long relationship and Simon is presenting at this workshop and Bob takes along with him because he lives in Arkansas and it's close. And so when I walked in on the first day, I saw just a little old man sitting in the corner and I thought, man, that looks so much like Bob Bailey. Like, And I'm sorry for saying this for anybody who's watching, but I didn't even know if the guy was alive still. You know, I just wasn't sure about
0: that or not.
1: And uh, so I kind of like creep up on him because I just got to get a better look. And that was Bob Bailey. So I was really excited and fanboying a little bit over him. And I just walked up and introduced myself and just told him I really appreciated him. And, <clears throat> and that, that was five days of training that seminar was. And the lovely thing was that, um, you know, Bob still had all this eager energy to teach and so much to share. And so when After the initial couple days when the information was given in like PowerPoints and the lectures, we broke out into groups and these three instructors had groups that would rotate and they would teach. And Bob just helped out Simon's group. um, A lot wasn't afraid to jump in and share these like pieces of wisdom and these good trainings um, adjustments that he would make for the people that were working. And so it was lovely. One thing that had to Anthony's question about jackpotting and I I talked with um Mike Ellis about this after that seminar and it like p- part of this is a semantical thing like a jackpot can be it's just it's like it's it's more than what they expect right like you're giving them a greater experience and part of it is to convince them that this task is worth more and so if they show up with some increased effort and a little more oomph, you are going to complement that by giving them a bigger payment. And like kind of what we know and what is, is written about in books about this stuff, the jackpot doesn't do anything for the rep that just happened because that's over with, right? But what it might do is convince the dog that this behavior they didn't think was so worth it is actually worth it because this is on the other side of it. I didn't realize I was playing for this. And so now I'm really in. Some of the questions that we had is like, why not just have a reinforcer that's enough to begin with that you're getting maximum effort? Like, why did you have to see a little more effort before you gave the more thing? And part of that is to put agency on the dog, I think, to see if they will supply some more because perhaps there is something greater through their effort. And so they learn to give more because maybe it yields more.
0: So So the jackpot, just not to interrupt you, but So really what he was saying is that the jackpot is really used for when a dog maybe did something that you, that was maybe unexpected or something that was um, I guess really important to the trainer that they wanted to really like make that a big deal about.
1: Mm. Yeah. The components that he said were important were, there was a significant increase in performance.
0: Mm, okay.
1: And the other thing was, it was unexpected. Like it caught you by surprise that the dog did it that well.
0: Got it. Okay. And
1: so dog is running to a touch pad at a distance and it usually takes some 10 seconds, but one time they just turn the blazers on and they do it at two seconds. And you were like, Holy smokes. Where did that come from? Like that was wild. That was a huge leap and I didn't expect it. Pay it better. Jackpot it. Click it and take your time to let that reinforcement last. And so those were two things that he'd said that stuck with me. Unexpected and significant leap in performance. That's the appropriate place for it. And then it's the way, and he's working with food a lot because, um, you know, they're training a lot of other things besides dogs. And so food is just usually the reinforcer that they're using, a, a lot of other things, but to get the ball rolling. And so this is something I was doing intuitively with dogs for a lot of years. Um, and I think maybe primarily because I had. I was working, I've been, I've been a Belgian malin, I'm a dog trainer, but the dogs that I've been keeping and raising for myself have been Belgian Malinois, and those things are pretty switched on, you know, they're precocious young dogs. And then they just have a lot of energy and it can get in the way, their pursuit of toys and their pursuit of rewards. And so teaching them to behave around reinforcement at an early age, sometimes we call that like impulse control or just keeping their shit together is important. And so before winding them up too much, I like to see some composure around these tools that I'm going to use to reward them with. And so I probably more than some of my peers would put, would be more comfortable calming dogs down around food and toys early on, or teaching them to put the brakes on earlier than somebody else might want to. And I think that there's, there's a cost to it. Like for the wrong dog, if you make them too composed uh, or thoughtful around their toys or their food, then they might always be that way. And by the time you have some behaviors that are secure and they're precise and you want a little more out of them, maybe they don't find it because they're just used to doing it this way. This is the mentality I've always approached this with, and this is the mentality I'm going to carry through for, for the rest of it. But I'm kind of banking on dogs that are going to hit points in their life where they they come up in drives. And so for me to have like the cleanliness and the structure to my training and just the comfort for myself, I like to make them a little more thoughtful early on about those things. And so there's tons of work that goes on with this now. This, this practice is evidenced all over. Um, and for me, it was first when I was observing agility trainers doing it, I thought that they were the ones that performed this best and maybe not in the same degree that somebody in a different sport would do now. But I saw uh, like that it was really important for them to get dogs to switch from toys to food and from food back to toys. And it seemed like they were trying to strike some equity between those two things. Like I want the ability to both use both these reinforcers. There's a chance you'll, you'll love one and like one later on, but I don't want you to turn your nose up. If I try to get you to leave a toy and take food instead when you're three years old and you're in all your feelings. And so there's a discipline that they were after and they were catching that early on when it was an easier sell in a sense. And then by the time the dog is, You know, more who they're going to be in their feelings about things. Their toy drive, you know, is greater than their food drive. They still have the ability to toggle between those without the dog feeling like it's a bad deal. And there's a lot to that as well, like toggling between something higher to lesser um, and food, the calming effect that it might have on dogs. Like uh, there's utility there. So for me, when I was raising young Malinois, I was slowing them down in the face of food early on. And some things that we see out there, Susan Garrett, it's your choice, having an open hand with food in it and uh, a young dog going to investigate it. And you just maybe closing off the opportunity and waiting until they keep it together and you bring it to them. And so that teaches them a beat, like how to behave around the presence of food. It's I'll just, I'll just hold it together. There's no good strategy in me at pursuing this thing. I actually have to contain myself or You could even push it further if you were comfortable with saying like negative punishment. You know, it's the opportunities there. You do the wrong thing. It goes away. You do the right thing. It comes closer to you. And so I'll start with young Malinois teaching them that the more composed they are, or even if I have a behavior that they understand pretty well, and I ask them to do it, it could be a simple thing like putting their feet on a touchpad. If you hold it and, and be cool, this gets close and comes to you. And if you get unsettled, it goes away. And it sort of puts the agent, it doesn't sort of, for me, it puts the agency on them. It's like they are in you know, command of their own outcomes there. So if they just learn to keep it together, good things come to them. And so for for young dogs, if I see certain things in them, I'll I'll push that work more or less, depending on what I'm seeing and maybe what I know about who I think they'll become. Uh, and I've overdone it with dogs and where I wish that I wouldn't have done so much of that containment work. And then I've had dogs where I wish I would have done more of it early on. And a lot of that work transfers to toys too. But one of the things that Bob had said back to to Bob Bailey was that, so a guy was training a dog to stick his nose in a glass. So they were shaping an indication, just the very beginnings. They had a, a mason jar. They put food in it. Dog went and fished the food out. They were clicking when it stuck his nose in there and the reward was directly in there. So that was easy work. And then they had gotten a few reps and decided to take the food out. Now they were just going to see if the dog could stick his nose in there with no food. And then they were going to click and feed outside of it. And so the dog, it took a little bit for them to catch on, but pretty soon he caught the drift. Stick my nose and click, feed outside of it. Even though feed is happening, food is happening here, the behavior I have to do to get to it is over here. And that's a concept, like doing a behavior away from the value source. And that's something we can push young dogs in early on people doing it with our manners, minders, or reward systems, or even in this simple thing, handful of food, go do this thing and get back to the handful of food. And that's a concept that permeates so many sports and so useful for any dog, pet dogs too, everyday life dogs. <clears throat> so the, the dog had done, done it really well. One time, there was a significant increase in, it, in performance and it was unexpected and Bob had suggested the jackpot that one and so the guy had nine pieces of food in his hand and he clicked and he gave him all nine pieces at the same time
0: <laughs> i was just gonna yeah i was just gonna ask you i was gonna ask you about it but it sounds like you're getting to it yeah so.
1: and that felt like a jackpot to me i was like hell yeah why not like you give him his daily daily do you know <laughs> and but bob took a moment to comment on that he said you know like a true jackpot is delivering one one piece at a time and it's This this threw me for a little bit of loop. Maybe this is the semantics, but he said that reinforcement is not an event. It's a process.
0: Hmm.
1: And I still haven't really like, I'd love for you guys to speak for that if you have anything on it, but I think it's both. Like it's a significant event. You want the dog to look forward to the, like the positive outcomes that are associated with behaviors and training. Uh, But the point to me was that reinforcement can last longer. Like you can let them exist in that event or that phase for longer and that there's actually good arguments to do that and so one is they get to just that spot that they worked so hard to get to they spend more time in it and so they exist in this place more and you can do that by giving them one piece of food at a time and bob's comment was if you had 15 pieces of food in your hand and you wanted to jackpot the dog and you just gave them all 15 pieces, you've essentially wasted 13 pieces of food.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that was his comment there that day. And so he said instead deliver every piece and let them appreciate every piece and exist in reinforcement longer. And I said, yes, that is something I'd been doing with with dogs anyway. And one of the reasons with these young energetic dogs is I found that it, it calmed them down. Like They were less aroused in reinforcement when they were being reinforced instead of just hammering on a big pile of food and not even thinking about it. They had to be a little bit composed even while they were still in all the glory of their earnings. And so the reinforcement was the same. They still got paid. They still were eager to do the task. They did it really well. Uh, But I was also able to... Like feel better about the energy that they had while they were getting paid. And I felt like that it also served the next reps. Like It let them be a more composed animal in general. So for me, I liked the energetics that provided. And so I was doing that on my own and just thinking, hey, one piece at a time, you're still getting paid. That's good. But you just have to be a bit calmer about this, dude. Don't lose your wits. And so that spoke to me and that was really good. But after it, it just drew more attention to it. And it just let me think, you know, like I, there was a reason I felt my way to this point. I was, I loved hearing Bob say that. And it gave me a little bit more to think about as I'm continuing to, you know, consider how I'm reinforcing with traditional reinforcers.
0: Did he, I'm curious just from the response he gave you. So did he give you any information on, is it also involving the interaction that you have with the dog, because earlier, like we were talking about, we were just talking about before our body language or the things we do with our movement and the interaction that the dog might have with that person. So I'm curious if he said anything about the internet, the interaction playing a role within that one piece of food at a time, because I'm thinking about like when my dog does something amazing at agility, how, like I feel like I play with him maybe even a little longer I feel like than I would typically I I don't I I I'm just thinking that that's I noticed that as you were saying this that that's something that I've done maybe unintentionally yep and you know he's talking about food so it's a it Not that it's different, but it is in a way. But that I'm just thinking about that interaction with play. So I'm wondering if he said anything about that regarding the food.
1: Yeah, he didn't. And maybe this particular animal was a four-year-old Malinois that was pretty pumped up. And I think part of what he wanted to accomplish was to calm him down a little bit. And so the, the slow feed of food, even though they kept coming, I think he wanted to capture a little patience there around it. The dog was still into it. He wasn't deciding he didn't want it because it wasn't moving and he wasn't able to chase it across the floor. He was still eager for it, but he was looking for the dog to take it in a more deliberate way. And so that to me feels like to teach him how to behave around food reinforcement too. It's coming. I I promise you it'll keep coming, but don't mug my hand. Don't get too hasty here. And I think that like, it molded the overall like energy of the dog, even then when it went back to the task, I think it it deflated them, not in a bad way. It just made them more like thoughtful. Hmm. And even precise in like subsequent repetitions, like th- this to me goes, there's tons of conversation that's happening about this right now. Like, I think the, the meat of what we're talking about is like, is the way that you're reinforcing your animal helping or hurting their ability to perform the task that you're asking them to do. And so like, um, I think a really important dog trainer, Ivan Bella Banoff, like who I think just says really penetrating things. He's provided a lot to the dog training community over the years. Um, Like, you know, however, somebody would feel about him or not, like there's some really substantial stuff that he's given us. And one of those was the game back in, you know, 2001 when he made obedience without conflict or training without conflict. And he, he, gave us the game which is playing with your dog in this intentional way that builds their sense of self so like one of the pieces of that is like he says like make your dog somebody you know like make them somebody you know they should be (laughs) so like dogs (laughs) like to play and have some fight in them like what you discovered with quest when you let her him is quest to him Her. her her who's your him dog journey journey so when quest when you started letting quest like assault your body with the toy and she's like god damn like i am feeling good about this and you're putting on all the acting chops like wow you're so impressive that's ivan like that's the stuff i think that he really provided over 20 years ago in his resources and also embedded in that was this is i think a little bit more more recent he's pushing on this stuff and um i don't and i don't we give credit to a bunch of people for this too, like Gellis and agility, agility trainers, I think even before them, but you know, you can mod, you can moderate the intensity of your play Hmm. to support what your training goals. So you don't have to play at a 10 out of 10 when all you're trying to get the dog to do is like lie down calmly. You can still reward them for toy, but like, you know, Don't throw it, maybe, because that might eat away at your ability to get it down. Bring it to him. Tell him yes. And then play calmly. Don't go over the top. And so the way that we play with them can help or hurt our training goals. And that's like an important part of that. So within what Bob was doing, I was feeling that. He didn't want a more dynamic interaction with reinforcement in this. He actually wanted the dog to accept a calmer way of receiving this food. And Bob is trained... Every animal under the sun, he uh, he told me that he never had his own owned his own dog that he trained. He had a daughter that had a dog; she did some training with it. He's certainly been involved with dog training for a long time and very serious, in real ways, and supported you know, brilliant trainers all over. And you know, could if he wanted to, but and and has been there hands on training other dogs. But what he's saying is, my own, I never had my own dog that I trained and I thought that was kind of just a fun little insight to him but the like being more dynamic or less dynamic with the way that we we reward we would make those choices based on our training goals and on the dog that's in front of you and Mike Ellis is the guy that has done I think so much like profound work with food chase games and letting food be more than just delivering it to your dog. I'm sure other people have played with it, but you know, I've been around his school for 15 years and that's a major part of the curriculum is, is making food better, letting dogs chase it, tossing it for them so they can have these feelings that are involved with the process of food acquisition. And so you can make your food more enticing by doing that. And a lot of like low to medium drive dogs have come into his school and left looking real snappy because they've had the benefit of working harder for their meals and for people changing how they interacted with food to make that a possibility for them. And so they've created reinforcement systems that wouldn't have been available to them had they not been willing to move and get behind it like that. And so that's stuff I love too. Would you...
2: Would you ever recommend sometimes jackpotting a dog for doing something simple to almost catch them off guard instead of always looking for that one rep that's exceptional because to your point of that rep is over, but the future reps matter. My wonder would be, what if the next rep doesn't exceed that one? So would it be beneficial sometimes to overpay a dog for, I don't want to say doing something wrong or shitty, but like say they do the right thing, but it's just, you know, maybe you're working on a specific target behavior that may be more difficult for that dog. And then you throw in something like a sit, which it knows really well and say it does that sit really nicely, but it's not what you're working on. Would you ever like jackpot that just to keep the dog enthusiastic um, about working with you in general. And then tied into that question is how do you then prevent after a jackpot not creating the sense of feeling with the dog of like, what the hell was that, man? The last one you gave me 14 pieces, nice and slow. And then now I'm going back to like one little crappy piece. Did I do, you know, like am I, did I do something wrong on that one?
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, to your first question, absolutely. Like i'm I'm still feeling my way through this stuff. like, and this maybe to your second question is something that I'm experimenting with now, too. And this this is something like a, a buddy of mine, um, Mike Ellis. We were just talking about this recently, which was we had this symposium with um, Stuart Hilliard, who's kind of a remarkable guy. I think people really need to know who who he is. And he's coming, right? Like he's worked for the Department of Defense for a lot of years. But, like we've kind of warmed him up to this idea that he's for the general public and he's sort of needed right now. So he came and did this symposium and put on a brilliant show and really kind of like rocked us in a lot of ways. I, I would encourage you guys to get to one. I think we might do one on the East coast in, uh, in next year. I'd encourage you to go there mainly to see him and, and Mike, uh, who's remarkable too. I feel like I'm just kind of along for the ride. Like, I don't know how I got in the mix with these two guys, but i'm taking it you know well
2: i gotta get a way to get a signature on my hoodie that i got from you so i'll be out there
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'll sign it but one of the things we left thinking about was moving to like variable schedules of reinforcement sooner Mm -hmm. just with with things that might not be fully finished you know like you know it's not fully there and so i'm gonna i just won't pay it this time and and so i think to your second part is like if if I'm doing that more with a younger dog, when I don't reward for something, even if they've been jackpotted before, maybe I've got a dog that already has some good persistence. And that's how you get the persistence that you don't hang out with continuous schedules too long. And I might've been undermining like my dog's effort or maybe not respecting their effort enough and, and placating to that too much because of my own self and maybe wasting resources in a sense. Like, why am I, why am I going through this much food and training when actually my dog's capable of more? But certainly, like, if I felt um, like a dog was just not bought in for enough for something, um, you know, then I start to question, like, um, the behavioral economics. Like, is the magnitude of the reinforcer enough to support the expense of this behavior? So, like, my dog just healed for a little bit. It's a tough behavior. There's a ton of different pieces that went into making this. And eventually I wanted to go for a long time. and The dog to be really eager to do it. And I've been healing and giving him a few pieces of food. And one day I just healed him and it was still the same. I didn't see any increase in effort, but I released him and paid him better because I want to see if that is going to affect the future. And then the only way to find out is to put them back into it and see if something changes. So all the time I'm playing around with things like that. This dog, isn't that into it. I switched food up on a client dog that was here the other day. She was feeding with something and her thing was the dog's just never been into food. Let me go try something. The dog did something lackluster clicked, gave it the new food. And then I just wanted to see if it looked at me with some intensity afterwards. What was that? (laughs) And it did. Yeah. And so then we were able to make better training at that point. And it was good for her to see that because she just said, oh, the dog doesn't like food. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm playing with that stuff a lot. And then that whole, that behavior economics,
0: like, uh,
1: which is, I think, is literally like the, the magnitude of the reinforcer has to be enough to support the expense of the behavior. You can almost think about that literally. It's like, is this enough? Is this enough for the dog to work for? And it cu- it cuts the other way too, like, the way that I think about it also is, am I overpaying for this? Would the dog do this same thing for less? And if so, I'm wasting resources and maybe taking, taking away from their persistence that they could find without it. And that's an interesting thing for me to think about who's really generous with reinforcement with dogs. And, and I like to just to, to be in it, break things down to pieces and pay a lot and stuff. and, and um, But could I get away with less? And how does that feel? And I'm trying to find my practice in that.
0: You got a cheap treat, Bill. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I have a question on the jackpot um, with regard to one individual piece at a time. Was he suggesting during each time you're handing a piece of food? Are you using your marker? Are you using just... Verbal praise? Are you saying nothing? Was there anything there that he said was very specific or important during that, you know, time period that you're handing one treat at a time?
1: Oh, one marker, one click, and then just let it ride. And he was like the way that he had showed it. He didn't have the food. He was just showing some emulating how to do it, Mm -hmm. embodying how to do it. Was grabbing one piece at a time and giving it to the animal. So that's how it showed. And I think that if you were looking to be clever about that, then um, we know that you could pair something with that. So you could insert something in that process. And I don't like,
0: good,
1: or yeah, Ooh. that's right. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if your marker's condition, once you click, everything that happens after that is reinforcement. And so you'll see a lot of folks now that will release, will click and then they'll clap. Mm-hmm. And then they'll produce reward. And, or yeah fine look at you uh and then they'll produce reward and like the strategy then over the long term is that you can release your dog click give them this and not reward them but they feel like they have been hmm. and that would have to be built into your training as well like that's something you could do with a young dog already and that that could be an example of how you could use less traditional resources but also like build things into your reinforcement that are meaningful, are back off of traditional reinforcers, food and toys. And that hold up, you just couldn't pay those every time, you know, either. And that would give you the ability to do it on like a trial field. And your dog would fully feel like they got paid for, for their experience.
2: Yeah. And then, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. after the event or the process, do you then closed do you do something to let the dog know that okay now that is over or do you just put the dog back into obedience or release the dog into whatever like say you're back home then you tell the dog you know free or go um so that the dog isn't kind of waiting for that to continue if it were to
1: yeah if i'm done with a session um there's a clear closing for that if I'm done with a trial, but I'm gonna continue training, then I've been inspired a lot recently by Mia Skogster. She's a Finnish trainer and she specializes in IGP. I'm sure she could train whatever the hell she wanted to, but she's really focused on that. And she makes beautiful training and she's really smart about her approach to it. Um, and I think it's fair to say, this is something that I build in all my dogs anyway, and and have cuz just cuz it it felt right or or even without thinking about it it's something that i found out that i've had in all my dogs that i've raised and trained for myself but it's really fun to hear somebody of her caliber speak to it and see how intentional she builds this into her training but it's seeking salience and so she talks about her training in three phases like when you're when you're working on something you're 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 trialing something not actually a competition trial but you're doing a specific behavior one repetition of it I think in the behavior world, they call a repetition of trial. So there's the work, the behavior, and there's the reinforcement. So the behavior phase, that piece of it, reinforcement and the seeking phase. And so it's this transition between the end of the reward event and the beginning of the work again. And how does the dog feel in that space? Mm-hmm. And we see a lot of people good trainers out there that do different things in that space, but I think that it's all to the same end. You have a dog that is a little lackluster, that you'd like to be more animated. You could teach them to bark at you or bounce in your face or offer up any number of behaviors on their own accord, which is them saying, I'm in it. I'm efforting. Give me something to do. Right. And so you're not asking for shit. You're standing there like you don't give a crap. And the dog is like putting everything into it. In IGP, we see barking a lot. With uh, like with all my dogs, I've just taught them to like almost hunt me, like herd me. Like if I move away from them, they cut me off. If I move back this way, they cut me off. It's like them saying, no, you don't. Like you will give me something to do. And I'm just convincing. You're goddamn right. Down, heel, fine, take. <laughs> Jesus Christ, leave me alone. Like It's kind of like that. Yeah. They get themselves back into position and then you pay it. So you fulfill it them and they're like i made this shit happen like you can't fool me i'm all over you and so this there and there's some like you know people that are playing around seeking salience is like the technical term i've heard from this or the scientific term the first time i heard it was a guy named simone and he's up in canada and he's he's a scientist and they were measuring like how dogs felt about like their ability to make things happen, their agency and work. What they were doing, the setup that they actually used is um, they were rescuing border collies and teaching them odor detection. And so these dogs had been on continuous reinforcement schedules, like they'd find odor and then they would, the handler would click and the dog would come back and get paid. And then um, then what they were doing is at one, one point they would not pay him on a click. So the dog would go back, find odor. They'd click, the dog would come back. They wouldn't pay and they'd say, get back to work. And how do you feel about getting back to work? So they were looking for, it's almost like a like a Skinner box, like when you're denied reinforcement, how, how much do you effort back into the task in hopes that you'll get it again? And then they were they were interested in how the dog felt about that and they're trying to measure those feelings. So the first time I heard seeking salience, but this seeking work is something that's been prolific in practitioners now, especially in the sport work. And the way that Mia had laid it out is she works on it really early on with her young dogs. And to watch a technician like her, a practitioner like her work, because she's got resources out there that if somebody was watching this and hadn't heard of her, then you should and are interested to check her out, then I think you should too, because there's some magic in that lady. But starts early on from a a young age. So she's got an eight-week-old puppy that she's doing food work with and she grabs some food, and she's already talking to him. <clears throat> and then the puppy knows she's got food, and she's good, puppy. What are you doing? Woo, and she's looking for this this interaction is staring up at the face. and And she's got her food and her hands with the food, and it's sort of in line with her face. So whether the puppy's looking here or not, she's already starting to establish like this upwards head. She's even moving a bit because now a puppy's already learning to walk with its head up and be called up. So you already see the supply of energy, like this lift in its front end. And no shit, man, you got like a seven and a half week old puppy that's healing already. It's nowhere near position, but everything that you want to see from, from a mood standpoint is there. And so she lures it into a position and does a little thing. And then she chip, gives the dog some food. It eats food, two pieces, maybe she gives it. And then after it's done, she's there and she walks away again. Wee puppy. And then the puppy goes, I'm with you. I'm coming. I'm I'm seeking you out. And she could reward that straight away. She just wants to see the pursuit or she could put it into something else. And what you get very quickly is the end of reinforcement is just the opportunity to start the cycle again. And they would really love to be involved in that. And I, it's like, it, this is stylized in different ways. I see trainers that are after the same exact thing and how, how would the dog presents itself ultimately within this experience For the same thing can be different, but I've got friends that are really good AKC trainers and they like their goldens to jump up, boing, boing, boing. And they own it on a cue now, right? It's almost like, are you ready to work? And then the dog can show you how ready they are. Are you ready to work? Wow, 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 wow. Fine, take heel. Are you ready to work? (laughs) just going to haunt you until you give me shit to do. And that's a dog that has taken it upon themselves t- to make you do something. Like, I feel like if I just push hard enough, you haven't paid me yet. Give me the thing to do that gets me to the pay. Give me the progression of training, goddamn it, because I know that this is where I need to be. And the last thing I would say in that is, um, back to the guy I mentioned earlier, Ivan Banoff, is in his play games, the out is a really important diagnostic piece um, for him. And I'd like to give like these people credit because it's where I've been in, like inspired by or the people that have kind of painted the picture for me you know but the out is an important like diagnostic for him and he would say something like the, the out is the foundation of my training you know? so, <laughs> i'd say that with all due respect you know, <laughs> you
0: know? but you, so you have- i wish people could see the look on your face when you do it—it oh, it adds deal. to the whole thing. Yeah, they <laughs> are. Amazing. Amazing. We're <laughs> all—we see each other, but when we post, they don't see you.
1: The <laughs> artist is totally everything for me. So, so <laughs> um, um, I hope I don't get a fucking email or something, you know, from somebody like. <laughs> we're gonna have, to
2: have Ivan come on here and do a forest
1: imitation. Of he doesn't even know who I am. He'll be like, <laughs> but uh, he, uh, but yeah, he's remarkable. So the out being this diagnostic tool the out is is essentially the end of reinforcement you can say Boop, mm-hmm. hey we're done playing it's done how did the dog feel about that are they looking around or are they totally anticipating the next thing and then there are you know things that you have to do within that transition between the end of work and the beginning of play again like if you've got if you've got toys and stuff in the picture like if if these things are out of the picture are you still pushing and pursuing me so we have to make sure when we remove these really obvious goals from dogs, that they're not tracking the goal, they're tracking the signs or they're just investing in the work. And like, it's, you can see the difference between, you know, when somebody has got that or not. And all it is is a matter of paying attention to that space and wanting to own it as much as you own everything else in your training. If for me, I've always felt it's the most important space because like saying do the command that's like oh i heard you now i'll do the command good You know, and oh yep i'm in for the reward because i know that's the thing but the dog that actually is pushing to produce those experiences like that's the difference between average and good or good and great and to, to be very interested on that to make that an incredibly rewarding place like that space too is reinforceable the dog's And in the beginning, it's reinforceable by paying them with food or directly paying with toys, or it leads back into the work. And so they get further down the line. Something they want to be involved in anyway. It also positions like the behaviors themselves as reinforcing. That's what it does. It makes those the goal. And that's the beauty of it.
0: Hmm.
2: So would you are are like would you define that space as the dog's engagement yeah yeah, yeah and, and and i agree with what you're saying is you know that's that's the space where you can kind of almost tell before you ask your dog to do anything if they're going to do it or not right? like you, you kind of know um if you lost them yep, yep. if they're not yep. if they're not in on that on that yeah
1: yeah i hear so you know, yeah sorry let's just say the Yeah. Engagement. um, I hear what's the uh, ignition trainer that says that a lot now. Mike's been saying engagement for a lot of years. I think that. Yeah. I
2: know there's a lot of different terms of what.
1: Yeah. I feel like this is just a side note that maybe like 15 years ago is probably when I started really getting serious about dog training and I, it was easy for me to see differences in people's approaches like systems. And maybe even folks were presenting systems because they wanted them to appear different than other ones. But, but more and more now, I feel like it's become closer to the same thing. Like the general mm-hmm. framework is very similar. And just the, like, one trainer says ignition talks more about ignition now and, or engagement or seeking. And thus, like, let's say that those are very similar things, how the dog can do those things can look different, but and uh, and so, all these you know great teachers and practitioners out there, I think the message is becoming more and more the same than it is different these days, which is a good thing you know.
2: yeah, I think it's a good thing. And I agree sometimes when the terminology is switched around, it makes you sometimes think that you're all talking about different things, but I think that's the beauty of being able to see see the work and watch, and you realize, like, ah, oh, we all are kind of doing the same things in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I wanted to speak on um, markers a little bit and uh, maybe you could help me work through work through something I've been thinking about so with um, I know when we had spoken you said you've kind of simplified your markers I don't know if that's still the case um, I went on a little bit of a marker frenzy for a little bit <laughs> where I started having markers for everything And I do see the utility in it to an extent, but I do train mostly pet dogs. Um, And as much as I would love to teach my next door neighbor to have like seven different markers with her, you know, his or her dog, I understand that it's incredibly difficult, you know, especially like first time dog owner, Um, you're already struggling. And then some guys come into your house and telling you, you need to have a, this marker and a that marker. And where are you on where are you with that and then um i guess based on on how you answer that i might have a (laughs) follow-up
1: one question
2: i'm trying i'm trying i'm trying to like consolidate my questions these
1: days what i want my markers to do for me are to help influence arousal Help me create more thoughtfulness in the dog, especially around really high value competing motivators and to make more supple and flexible their their energy and their their mentality and training. And so what extent I go to with a marker system would be dog dependent, but I think in general, I have simplified where in the past I might have distinguished between food on the ground, remote food versus remote toy. I no longer do that. If I have a remote, if I say get it, there's just a remote reward on the ground and I'm not going to have you differentiate further between them. I do still have a marker that means switch to food. That's something that I did 13 years ago for the first time with um, Elzer and I've done it with every dog since. And I've constantly tested that as the dog grows and their capacities and their physicality to ensure that it, it continues to exist and that it doesn't feel like a bad deal for them, that they don't resist it. For me, the function of going from toy to food for Something like a Belgian Malinois, which is the dog that I primarily for myself in training, is I like the calming effect that food can have. And food, you could say something like, is the natural conclusion to the expression of prey. Like, I completely understand dogs are not wolves. (laughs) But they still maintain a lot of these primitive drives that which the function was in the past to get a meal it's not the same way they do it anymore because we selected them to be hypertrophied and i think these were in these ways that are now beyond like that utility and they get their meals elsewhere now they just like to chase for the sake of chase but you know so too did the hunting animal something felt good in there says ray coppinger and so i'm interested in developing that tool early on with a young dog, the ability to switch from something that I know eventually will be more arousing for them, can you still accept the lesser thing?
0: Mm.
1: And I'll capture it young and I'll maintain it into adulthood. But where I choose to use it then um, would be specific, like I would then connect the acquisition of food to a behavior that I want to be more contained or where the nervous system can calm down in a down. When early on in my decoy work, I was going to Europe because that's where I think you would go if you wanted to really get your hands on a lot of high level dogs and also see the best decoys and clubs. That were social clubs not business clubs that just had all like the, the whole machine just moving smoothly but you could get a ton of work in and experience a lot of you know people that were better than you not saying there was nobody good here it was just less now there's fantastic people here and you probably don't have to anymore but back then there was less so you went there but one of the revealing things is they trained young dogs very differently than i was learning to train young dogs here and like for, for example um they would do a lot of food work in the face of the high value reward, the the, the decoy, the thing in bite sports, a good dog is going to end up wanting to bite the, the decoy as much as anything. And early on, they were doing tons of food work around the decoy. And the defensive handler, especially this behavior, those of you are you know, watching where the dog stays by your side and you walk around through an environment that has all these, you know, these threats. Some guy's going to come up eventually and assault you and your dog gets to bite him and they're going to love doing that. But with the young dog, they would walk around this environment, the same picture they're going to see three years from now when they're actually out there doing it, and they just feed food. This is what you're doing right now. And separate from that training, they were teaching them how to put their mouth on things and do it well with confidence in a full mouth. But they weren't mixing these worlds yet. And one day they would mix them, and they would see how it affected the dog, and then they would have a management system in their training because they were really concerned with the, the appropriate mood. They didn't want their dog to make too many mistakes because they thought it was a biting exercise instead of an obedience exercise. So they convinced them of that early on and they maintained it. And to the point about using, like to de-escalate the dog, you could say, or to influence arousal by having the ability to switch them from something better, if a toy is better, to food, if, that, if that's not as, as much, to have that intact. Um, what I saw there was with the old, with their... Veteran dogs, high-level dogs, tons of experience. The dog would go down, fight the guy. Be really good at it. Tons of energy. Come back. Maybe they would reward the toy. Maybe not. After, if they rewarded the toy after, it'd say down, out, down. And when I saw these dogs going down, they went down very happy, and they immediately like decompressed. Whew. They weren't sitting there like out of their minds looking for the, the decoy. They weren't rocking up on their elbows like they couldn't keep it together. Their, their their body wasn't preparing for mobilization and doing all of this jarring work, which you see when certain dogs are getting ready to run. And it re- I really noticed that because it was stuff that I was working. We had a, a club of young trainers and I was... Um, sort of heading at the time and we were dealing with a lot of these things misbehavior we could talk more about that and i thought wow these dogs are really composed that dog just went and fought the dude he's probably gonna go fight him again he's really keeping it together here and then i noticed that a common practice was they would go up and feed the dog in the down every so often if it's if it's a you know, experienced dog, maybe not at all, but I saw it enough with young dogs that I knew that that was the protocol. And it made me think, man, I don't know if my dog Elzer would even take food in this situation. Like he is so worked up around this stuff. And so the first time I went over to, to Europe, the, a guy, if you guys, if you guys have two, haven't heard of him, or if anybody that ends up watching this thing, hasn't heard of him, Joachim devot he was a mentor of mine. And in my suit work early on and i would go over there and he'd take three weeks or four weeks off of his military job and we would just cruise between belgium switzerland and france and work dogs and clubs because he had connections everywhere and like my skill set and experience grew exponentially in those short periods of time because i was working dogs every day so that's something that would be neat to aspire to if you're somebody out there listening and you want to be a good decoy but and so I came back from that first trip and I I wanted to tackle that. I wanted to know, like, first of all, Elzer, who who had become pretty, like a pretty powerful, eager bite work dog. Like he had a lot of character. He was good at it. It was the best thing for him. Um, I found out he couldn't eat a piece of food in the face of a decoy. It, just, it, it was unfathomable to him. His body could not calm down enough to accept it. I'd put it in his mouth and he would just <gasps> put it out. And I was a little uncomfortable with just like, the state the energetic state that he was in and I was curious if I could do something about it and so I took two months to try to tackle that challenge and it paid off and like the like the short story is the way that I did it is I'd go out there and it, it would it's just how you would approach a dog that was having like behavioral troubles with some trigger in the environment you'd keep enough distance and like once they calm down a bit some time could be on your side or they offered some ulterior all ul, ul, Some other behavior, you would reward him for it. And so I brought him out there, asked him for a down. He sees the decoy. There's enough distance. He hasn't done any biting yet. I haven't even played with him. I give him a piece of food. He doesn't take it. I wait a little bit. I can see him settling a little bit or starting to question like what's going on I give him a piece of food and he takes it and he learns to start accepting some food and I would break those up and then I'd come out and do some bite work. So I wouldn't try to mix. I wasn't trying to pre food to biting. Like if you eat this, you get that. I truly wanted food to exist on its own and to do its job. And I did earn like a, a calmer, more thoughtful dog. Uh, by doing that work, there was other things added on to it. I upped my play game. Um, I always had a good play game with him and my play game was good enough usually to match like the, the decoy on the other end, the infidelity that existed on the other end of that. Um, But once he started biting some slick guys that really knew what they were doing, you could see that his head was getting more towards the decoy. So I upped my play game. I worked on what are common practices now that weren't common back then switching dogs between reinforcement toy reinforcers. This comes from the agility world, switching, toggling between disparities, like making sure you don't have disparities. Here's a big bite wedge. If I ask you to leave that and bite this other thing, can you do it or do you fight me and resist it? And so I I earned equity in those situations And so I just went through the gamut to repaint, like, this is what reinforcement can be. And I need you to accept, be disciplined enough, trust me enough to accept what might be a lesser value. But hopefully you don't perceive it that way. Hopefully it's just all a good experience for you. And then choosing what thing to use when and knowing that, you know, the rewards that are attached to behaviors, they affect those behaviors. And so choose your reinforcement wisely because it's going to make a difference but having those options and like their repertoire of options is incredibly useful. I'm, for me personally, the, I don't know how far this goes. Um, maybe you guys could speak to this a little bit, but I have seen, um, some trainers that are, uh, and I only question it when it when it infiltrates like the protection sport world and it inter- and it kind of goes against what my experiences have been. so then I question it. I go, you know I've played around with that and I haven't seen that to play out true, but you're saying it's true so is it something that I didn't do to completion or I didn't is the, is the method wrong that I was using or are you full of shit or like what's really going on here And I really want to know because if it's good information, it's helpful that I, I I need it. Um, but it's the reward hierarchies And I guess we just talked about this a little bit. But there's something that's deeper that's going on that I've seen from trainer use and I've seen it play out in um some agility work and then I've seen somebody that was trying to do it in protection too and it didn't go the way I thought that they thought that it was going it but it was teaching the dog to um like play uh gamble a little bit with reinforcement so you have three different types of treats in your bag and you give you, you know which one they really care a lot for and which one that they like a little bit and which one that they is the least on the totem pole and teaching them to accept the one that's least on the totem pole to get the benefits of like having a lesser valuable thing so maybe for the arousal effect but also having a dog that works just as well afterwards it's not depleted by it but it still carries a lot of hope and so toggling between these things that you could impact behaviors attached to them, um, but also have a gamer have a dog that's willing to play through those things. And so you can t- teach them to accept lesser things without being disappointed by it. And part of that to me feels like either a waste of resources. Like why would I go to those lengths to do that unless there was a real clear like, benefit to it? Because my experience with good dogs is that like, um, This is something a friend said, so it's kind of his words, but the overall landscape of the training at some point takes a hold and influences the arousal. A good dog that loves fighting the decoy, once you put a program together, like a protection sport program together, and they know what it's about, I'm going to go out there and kick ass eventually, that fuels them for a long time within that context. You go out there and they're just naturally turned on because they go, I'm going to do some obedience. I do some jumping and then I go start kicking ass and I love that stuff. And they're just kind of built from it. And so you can play with them. You can get them to accept food. But that ultimate experience still penetrates that whole scenario. You don't get total control over their mood and their emotions and that thing. And maybe it'd be wrong to feel so and is it is it like is the cost of not doing that is it worth it right like is all those extra steps worth it and so that's the stuff i'm feeling my way through right now in my own practice with dogs and every dog is different and maybe all the way back to your question about markers is i know that the function i need from markers are the basic functions that we all know which is they capture moments in time they predict reinforcement uh, and i think protect behaviors might be a a more contemporary way to look at them Let me bring this conversation to this. Uh, Stuart Hilliard, Dr. Stuart Hilliard presented at the symposium this paper that was written by this is this is well-known stuff. You guys probably know about it, but written by the Brillians, the, the misbehavior of organisms. And so this was you know written. 70 years ago by the Brillins, and it was, I think uh, the way that he described it, the way that Bob Bailey described it at dinner at a conversation I had with him. So I can speak firsthand about this from Bob Bailey who didn't write it. The Brillins did was that it was a little bit of a poke in the side to a BF Skinner and they knew BF Skinner uh, really well for a period of time, but he was trying to encapsulate like all of animal training as this obs- of these observe the things that you can observe through operant and instrumental learning so operant conditioning instrumental learning and he was he was less interested in classical conditioning and the the effects of it because it's hard to quantify that stuff like how feelings take hold and this, this shit that's reflexive and outside of the dog's choices or animal's choices affect what they're doing that stuff's hard to see and quantify but like this mechanized training we're doing, these operant chambers, we put animals in and we say that there's this causality that exists and you can figure it out. And now you're in control of your own destiny. Like that's observable. We can measure trials. And, blah, blah, blah. and so the story behind that is, and I'm I feel a little insecure right now because there's gonna be maybe if somebody's listening to this is probably has a way better handle on this. So I'm gonna do my best. And I'm not a fucking scientist, I'm just some rabid dog trainer that's out there getting dirty and grimy with it but i am <laughs> talking to people that You're are good. Smarter, good. smarter than me <laughs> but like the way that that paper came about is that Brailins had trained this raccoon for this department store front and it would take like they trained it that when a coin presented itself it came out of like the slot that the raccoon would grab the coin it would put it in a slot and food would be produced right so the raccoon was like the signal was the coin the behavior shoving the slot and then the consequence was food and the raccoon would do it and then at some point in this process basically the raccoon quits shoving this coin in the slot and i think that it was actually when they started putting multiple coins out and that might be important but that part i don't have a grasp on but what's important about this is at some point the raccoon just said forget it. I'm not shoving the coin in the slot anymore. He actually didn't say he didn't think forget it. I'm not shoving the coin in the slot anymore. He just stopped shoving the coin in the slot. And what he started doing was playing with the coin like it was food. Hmm. And raccoons do a bunch of like food processing behavior. You know, like I used to hike around my Creek uh, where I grew up and Actually, we'd go out, my buddy and I would go out at night and we would see, that we'd go down by the creek and we'd catch crayfish with these big screens. But we'd see raccoons a lot down there and they'd catch crayfish too and play with them, right? So they do a bunch of food processing behavior. But the point of it was, is that classical conditioning, coin equals food. Coin equals food. Coin equals food. That signal of coin and the outcome of food a classically conditioned effect happened there and it interfered with the raccoon's ability to perform an instrumental response. And so the coin equals food. Let me just start playing with the coin like it is food. And then this paper was written and they said like, hey, check it out. What about classical conditioning? You're saying it's not a thing, it's profound. It's the bigger part of this pie. If the if like the contingencies of classical conditioning are not in place to support your instrumental work, your instrumental work is going to be a clusterfuck. Like it's the bigger piece of the pie. And so the the raccoon wasn't making a choice to play with the coin like that. It just had been conditioned to feel about the coin like food. And we call that misbehavior. It's not disobedience. And so now there's this difference between misbehavior, things that go wrong that are not in the animal's control, and disobedience, what you might think they know what to do and they're just not doing it. And so often, especially in sport work, we see, I see trainers Attribute disobedience to what is actually misbehavior. They go, you know what? I see a dog that can't help themselves because they haven't had the benefits of creating like a supple reinforcement program with them, or um, you know, tool with them. They haven't been toggled between things and learned to give stuff up and and switch between higher and lesser things. Yeah. <clears throat> And so animals that just can't keep it together because they haven't had the benefits of that work to create the flexibility and people saying, look, they're being a bad dog. They can't hold her down. And so where that is meaningful to me is it goes back to what I said before, which is, it's like, it sounds like a trite thing to say, but it's a powerful thing to say. It's like how we, re- how we reinforce matters, how we reward matters. You've got an explosive, eager dog, loves to chase, loves to chase, and you're working on a downstay. Why would you say chase and throw their favorite toy 100 yards for them to go and chase after? Why would you do that 20 times in a row and not expect the possibility of some erosion in your downstay or your dog's ability to stay composed in their downstay? or rewarding them with, you know, something that causes some explosiveness or some great intensity for them when you want a composed behavior. You can get quick responses for ball tosses, but you might not get quick, long-lasting, committed, comfortable, cool, lasting responses with doing something like that. And so it simply just calls into question, like, how rich is your... Like the way that you reward, the ability for you to reward and, and all the options that you have for reward. Like how sophisticated is the system you have with your dog, which then gives you options to confront these problems and make them less actually do away with them without having to be hard on your dog or compulse them, look at them like they know when they don't, because you caused this problem simply by the way that you're reinforcing. And this animal is who they is, is who they are. So you made it. <clears throat> And I think that for if, if, like, if that means something, we go, that's really interesting. That's important to us. Then it allows us to, like, take, like, give the dog some grace. Like, that's not, that's not a bad dog. That's a dog that can't help themselves. And you created that shit. So you need to go back and find some way to accommodate that right now. And that would go back to all the things that we were just talking about, about different ways to reward our dogs and maybe the importance of, like creating a discipline within our reinforcement dogs that willingly go- move from a higher value to a lesser value things or the ability to toggle them from you know, chasing their favorite toy to food and the drive channeling that we might be able to accomplish through that. That's where I'm at on a lot of this stuff right now. <laughs> I am like, uh, <laughs> we'll <see>. I'll just... <laughs>
2: All right, let's go. It's starting now. Let's go
1: well, from here. But I, I wanted to actually, I just wanted to close out on that piece and just say.
0: <laughs> after after all that, no, no, I just wanted to close out. <laughs> yeah.
1: But but I just wanted to confess that um, there was a time in my life where I was a really serious practitioner and I had just dipped my toes into sport work, but was doing it in a real sense. We had a club, we were working our asses off. I was a certified decoy in two sports. I had two dogs that I was competing and doing trials at the and wearing the suit for trials at the same time. So there was like a two year period that I was really into it. And then like my life took me in a different direction. And I've certainly had my hands on a lot of uh, people that have like, or helped and assisted and people that have gone on to do things, but you know, I've never been the guy in that sense. And so like, and I'm, and for me that I'm I'm not sad about that, or it's not an excuse for anything. Life is really infinitely interesting and you kind of have to go where you have to be open to going where it leads you. And, And I was, and I love that. like about it but i have had a real hunger in the last three years to to get back in it in an earnest way i've got friends who are incredible resources that have done amazing things that i'm lucky to be you know in cahoots with so i've got you know and and the sports itself in this country have become more accessible it still doesn't feel like accessible enough maybe but compared to what it was, and especially like when my mentors were doing it. Like I don't know how they got anything done back then. You'd have to drive, you know, 36 hours to go find a club. And so it's just it'd be easier to do right now. And it's a hunger that's in me. But I my practice has been reinvigorated in the last four years. And so with some more depth than I had in the previous four years have been honestly playing with this stuff and can, you know, feel it in my bones again. And, uh, but I'm constantly looking at this and wondering, you know, do I have the full grasp of it? Oh. One last thing I'll think about, I'll say about markers though, Vinny, is um, so on top of all that, that stuff we spoke on it, I think that the ability to have multiple outcomes to a given scenario is important and an example would be your your dog is in the down and it's just a just your everyday homie dog right he loves to chase squirrels and you've also played tug with them and he likes that too and you're looking to maybe steal some of the power from the squirrel chasing you can keep it as an option for them, but you don't want it to be the only option. And you're practicing downstays amongst this really juicy competing motivator. And so your dog is in down and you can release him to the squirrel. Or you have a second option. You could say a different word, which means you come to me and you play with this toy game. Contingent on the thing that you're offering them, they've learned to accept it or it's as good as the other outcome. Then then your work's easy. I'll just steal constantly from that and bring you here because that's more functional for me. But even having a second outcome, I mean, you can go as far to have three outcomes. Like uh, I could reward you this way, that way, this way. Like That's where people go with it. But even just having one more thing divides the dog's mind and makes them a better listener, a more composed animal. And it greatly reduces mistakes that they would make of anticipation because they can't quite anticipate because this could end in multiple ways. Really like strong, certain dogs confronted with their most favorite thing. I've just seen like people have a really hard time getting them to compose, settle, do anything when they know that that outcome is there. And a lot of it is just misbehavior please lay down and hold it and quit twitching. But why are you doing that? Why are you shaking? Why are you doing that? Why is your elbow up? They don't even know what the hell's going on. It's just misbehavior. It's not disobedience. And if you just had one other way that that thing could end, you can totally, you can poise the dog differently. And one of the words we've been using lately is equipoise. And I think that is a huge advantage of markers is the influence on arousal and the ability to, like equipoise your dog especially in the face of those really intense competing motivators
0: equipoise i never heard of that one and
2: so when you're when your dog is expecting that marker that means you know go attack the decoy and and say the dog is looking at the decoy and saying that and then you're giving them this other marker that might mean get the toy off of my body um could you almost argue that it's In the beginning, at least, maybe not even like a reinforcement marker. Like it's almost because you're, you know, if the dog is anticipating that decoy and looking at it, can you accidentally turn it into almost a punishment marker? Um,
1: Yeah, you can. I wouldn't use it in that space unless I was sure that it was equitable. mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work that you would do beforehand leading up to that situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are tells like um, somebody that plays with their dog with a fire hose tug with two handles on it around a guy they just spent a week week biting the helper with the sleeve. Now they're trying to play with him on the field for the first time. They've got a leash in their hand and they say out. And they say out and the dog turns around and like tries to go after the helper again or at least is looking at the helper and you're having a hard time getting them just to get back on the toy like no way you're going to contrast those two outcomes with each other because it is going to be And so you have all the work to do to go out and either balance out your dog's experiences in that context. Like out here, you are off balance. You've had way too much of this, not enough of this. Me being a thoughtful trainer and aware of where my patterns are, I'm going to come out here and I'm going to try to balance out your experiences and see if that's enough. Cool, now I've come out here and five days in a row I've played with you in this place that normally means bite work. And you know what? Shit, after I ask you to out, you're still sticking with me, cool. Now maybe I'll bring the helper out and see what that changes. Because at least the field itself, now I've taken some of the some of it away. Cool, guy sitting in a chair, you'll still play with me after the out. You're looking at me, not looking and searching around for him. I'm feeling better about this. Hey, homie, could you stand up and come a little closer? And on and on you can go just to make sure that you have what you want and for me the outs are like an important diagnostic feature there and the other thing though is um and that's just balancing experience and making sure that the thing that you're offering them like is enough and i find like if you do that work early on you never like even though the dog bill if if you're careful about the experiences if you don't get too lopsided one way you can average out your dog and it could be good i see that i see yeah. you doing that. Uh, Vinny, I see it being no problem for you. I think it's people get a little bit carried away and they forget to, to honor their play or think that that's still important forever, that it gets off balance. And then like, I'm not, I'm never, I never feel it's a setback personally, like for myself and my own training, or if I tell somebody else to move up in a piece of equipment to strike the balance. So, like, I want to play with a ball and a string because I can easily hide it in my pocket. I don't want to walk out there with a bite wedge because it's so obvious. And my dog's so big. <laughs> it's like all you're working on is a, a nice whistle recall, and your dog does way better on a whistle recall with the wedge. So, why not for right now? Let him go down there. Decoy keeps the work calm. He gets to pra- practice a pivot or like going through the accessories. So, your dog is still learning down there and they're getting more there. And why fight the battle with? The recall right now, like just have a leg sleeve Who gives a shit? Like you're still making good training. And then away from that, like so in that training situation, you're still getting everything that you need in that. And then away from that, know that you have work to do with your toys. You can be more physical. You can practice toggling games or switching games if your dog likes that. Toss your toy if you haven't been doing that enough. I don't know, fight them better, whatever it is. You, there's work that you can do there. But separate from like making your dog equitable in those experiences, you can do setups that are more technical to teach your dog to truly discriminate between your markers. So I usually, I i do a triangle. I set up a triangle and then borrow it from an old IGP setup. But it's me and a toy, the dog and a behavior and a remote toy, which is the same as the one I have. And generally, by the time I'm doing this, I've charged a remote marker. Get it means you leave me and you go find the thing on the ground. And I also have a lot of history with saying yes and producing things for my person. But now I'm putting I'm confronting the dog with these two choices. And so. I have a leash in my hand, too, in case they make the mistake, I can block it. But more so in the beginning than blocking them for making the wrong choice is I'm Make I'm helping make the choice for them. So an example would be, I'm here, dog's here, remote's here, and I'm gonna send them to the remote reward. So I say, get it, and I might then take a step with my body or even point it out. They go pick up the toy, I play with it. Yay, yay, yay. I play them back to the same spot. I out them and I down them. I don't out them and down them over here and then drag them with a leash or try to talk to them to get them back there. I play them back to the beginning of the trial again which gives me the ability to reward clean behaviors there and not have any gray area. Clean out? Yes. Clean down? Yes. Out, down, good, or whatever behavior I started with. They have to have a downstay. I walk back, set the remote reward down, and then I triangulate myself. I've got the same toy in my hand that exists here. And I might say, get it again, or I might try a yes, just depending on how I feel, what they need. If I say yes, I'm immediately presenting the toy. So they might even take off towards it, but then they come towards me. And I keep playing that game and I keep being aware of how much signaling I'm doing after the fact to help the dog. And I try to make those things less. And pretty soon what you find is like, and then you can add some, like often what happens is the dog starts looking at you. And for me, I used to use this as a healing game. I wanted the dog to learn to look at me for remote reward or for the reward that I have. Chill out, homie. And then... I would then get closer and closer to them and position the better their eye contact game. But pretty soon they're looking at you and they're not just exploding out thinking they know they have to wait there for the words that come out of your mouth and they can make a right choice. And there's a lot of power in that uh, for me. And so if I had true discrimination then without having to use my body at all, and then I had equity amongst those competing motivators with things that I'm offering, uh, then I'm going to, set up the thing that you asked about and not expect it to be punitive but it's fair game you've been Mm -hmm. disciplined Mm -hmm. in this or accepting of this one last thing i'll say in this uh tyler muto the buddy of mine and we've had like he you know he really has put his hands on a ton of like everyday dogs and helping people out with those and so we were talking about this concept and um years ago and he had said you know that I'm just, he's like, I'm thinking about my own experience and I'm kind of equating it to s- something that I know to be true and with dogs. And he said that for me, it's easier to like, uh, like imagine um, a dog that when it sees little white dogs, it reacts to them. It's got trouble with little white dogs. They Just something about them. And he said, it's easier for me to work that dog, that dog that shows react reactive tendencies around little white dogs it's easier for me to work that dog around five little white dogs than it is around one little white dog
0: mm. and i thought more targets.
1: you're dividing mm-hmm. you can't fixate you cannot fixate there's not one given outcome they're like you're dividing the mind they don't know what to do they have to like that feels yeah. a little bit like flooding but like that was interesting because the point is that's what i feel like this work does is it divides the dog's mind a bit and in that's our in our case, what we're talking about makes them a better listener. And so I was lucky to be around agility folks and then very smart trainers. I mean, like maybe not lucky. I I knew where I wanted to go and and I was around the things that I thought would serve me the best. But um, yeah, man, I was touched up with good stuff early on uh, in my training, was able to, to expound on that. So. You know, I feel like I've been uh, rambling on a bit. And part of it is we, you know, we, we practice how we talk about these things or these ideas that are in our head, how we communicate them. But what are you, I mean, do you guys have ex- experiences on this stuff or how have you used these things we're talking about with your own dogs or client dogs?
2: Yeah. So First, I wanted to say that your raccoon story reminded me of uh, going on Netflix sometimes and spending like 30 minutes trying to find a movie and then never putting anything on, It's like (laughs) misbehavior, you know, just (laughs) become conditioned and then you're not even enjoying it, (laughs) just playing with it like it's food. Um, Yeah, what what I've definitely played around with is is setting expectations um, because I know that it's gonna change the emotions of the dog. So I I originally was exposed to this from Jay Jack with um, I believe he calls like windows of opportunity. So just like clearly letting the dog know like what what things are gonna be available at what time, um, and when there's nothing gonna be available. Um and I I find that is extremely important. We actually talked on our most I think two podcasts ago uh, ago about dogs that we want to settle, right? Like they want to go to the cafe and just lay down and do nothing. And why sometimes using high value rewards in a situation like that for something like a place behavior is, is just setting the dog up to create this, you know, the dog is just amped. Like, when am I getting my next cookie? Um, So, and then with client dogs, being new to bite work, the decoy in my experience is my client's dog's trigger. you know, mm-hmm. if if I had to pick something. and that's why when you said that, that was exactly how I feel. Um, it's almost like when i when I was doing Monuring in the beginning, it was like i was I was creating a trigger for my dog almost, right? Yeah, <laughs> like I was creating this thing where I was like, I had this really engaged puppy. And then every week I would go. I'd be like, "Ooh, oh no! Like you're starting to like you're starting to like that, right?" Um, and I think that's what's most important for the the regular person is like the decoy to us is the the squirrel is the dog across the street. So teaching those people these concepts, um, building building themself up instead of you know you go outside and the best part of your dog's walk is seeing the trigger that they're never going to get or maybe they get loose one time you know like that's sometimes I don't know what you think about that but on the in the bite sports at least we're able to let our dogs get to the decoy and then we could play around with the decoy but what if like your dog's thing is like chasing down that little white dog and and biting it Mm -hmm. you know like we can't we can't call the neighbor and be like, hey, can you like meet me across the street and walk around and I'm gonna try to, you know, (laughs) take my 90 pound dog out on a leash and do some rewards around you. So it's sometimes difficult. And then the one time that situation is occurring is crazy and chaotic and catches us off guard. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do find that if I can, can I build a similar type of emotional response in that dog with a toy or food, whatever that dog's thing is, and then doing remote type stuff so that I can build the skills that that dog needs when like they are lunging at the end of the leash for, you know, a dog across the street.
1: At least you can compete with that then.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So like, what are the skills that this dog needs and then how do I kind of replicate that in a safe way and And then show that dog that situation.
1: Hmm. Anthony, what do you got?
0: I don't know. I got nothing. I'm just sitting here listening to the music with you two, honestly. (laughs) A little bit of music.
1: Let me me bring this up. I had listened to a podcast with two really successful trainers, and I think ideologically they are different. They, they, they both know what they know and really believe in it and um, and agree to disagree on some things and it was a productive conversation, I think and I, I hope more of those things happen you know just in the future in general like um, civil conversations about just dog training today and 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 trying to like hone in on an objective reality. to to what is because i uh, so much of it is subjective and how we feel about the world and this kind of influences how you train and but there was um an interesting part of it was they were talking about dealing with problem behaviors and like an example would have been the dog isn't you know perfectly putting its mouth on something and Um, And holding it calmly. I think that was the actual thing. One of them was like holding something in their mouth. And what you know, this one of the trainers had said that you know why couldn't you tell them if they were doing it wrong? Just say, hey, no, that's not the right thing. Try something else. The other trainer, you know, thought that not making like there's no need to make the dog feel like they made an error if you just break it down fine enough and approximate your pieces, you can have that. And both are. Well, let's take it further. And so it was more specific. The the train, the one trainer that was dealing with um, having a dog that wasn't composed in the mouth when they're holding things, it was munching on it a lot, also exhibited that behavior on a lot of its toys, this kind of compulsive, the erraticness of the mouth and the chewing. And it was a bit obsessive, obsessive compulsive, let's say. And so getting it to be composed and hold a dumbbell calmly was quite a like a task, part of the solution, and this trainer is a good trainer and and made really nice holds on the dumbbell. And so did her piece work, peeled back the layers, captured the right behaviors and uh, just built on it, right? But part of the solution was the reward for calm holding was the ability to go and munch on something else. The bad behavior still existed as part of the process to teach the good one, it still had to stay alive. I, I was listening, stay alive.
0: I was just um, having this discussion with Annalise actually Monday because um, with Quest, one of the things that becomes an issue at times is when she wants to play, she'll sometimes want to go play the party of one game and zoom around. And um, you know, when you're either in a class setting or you're trying to train for a sport that isn't always uh, a behavior that you really want popping up too much because it's inconvenient a lot of the times. And I was um, telling her that I started teaching Quest to zoom around Um, and play by herself more on cue that way the behavior is still there but it's more now put on cue rather than you just choosing to blow me off and go do your own thing Um, right you know and trying to keep her because one of the things I've had a big challenge with and I think probably you and I have discussed it before is her staying with me in terms of when the toy is out not not when there's food that's not the issue but it's when there's a toy sometimes she'll play uh with you and then she'll a lot of the time like to run off yeah um and so so yeah i just had you what you just said just reminded me of that that I, i just happened to be talking about it this week is how can we keep that behavior there but put it on cue and use it to our advantage and she still gets to do what she's trying to do
1: yeah and so you own access to it Mm -hmm. and that's totally appropriate if the behavior is appropriate like to Vinny's point if it's a risky behavior risky to someone else or (laughs) excuse me or the dog then we're confronted with the fact that we might not be able to keep it alive yeah, to let it exist and surely not be part of the strategy by which we we capture something else or make something else the antithesis to it. And also by doing that, you probably will see that because you own it and there's a gateway, a clear a clear gateway towards it, that it'll it'll happen less. She won't make the choice to do it, so it won't be like self reinforcing because she can't choose it on her own. And you'll get stronger investment investment in the way that she wants to play with you. Excuse me, I got the hiccups all of a sudden.
0: <laughs> drink that water, drink that yeah. water.
1: But to your... I Hold on, let me take a call. <laughs> it's actually vodka, which is why I got the hiccups boys.
0: Oh Oh, well.
1: <laughs> there you <laughs> it's go. Not, it's not... So <clears throat> that was one of the problem behaviors that they addressed. And the other was a, a dog that was disengaging from sessions. And... So the trainer's trying to conduct training and and the dog would, after a certain amount of time, just say, "I'm I'm over it. And it would go and jump in a pond and swim. And so part of the solution was the same thing. It was keeping that alive by putting it on cue so you own access to it. So you still periodically let the dog rehearse it. But then there was another, a number of other strategies like let's build our play, let's not work the dog so long so that they feel like yeah. checking out, et cetera, but still having, owning that thing. And so that's a great strategy for overcoming things. And, and there's a lot that you could learn if you actually said, you know what, I'm not gonna try to fault the dog for this. I'm trying to approach it in different ways. But to, to Vinny's point, what if it was something completely dangerous that you couldn't let exist anymore? And if dealing with, problem behaviors, like nuisance behaviors, if your strategy had to involve at least in some capacity, keeping the problem alive, owning it and putting it on cue and only letting it exist like less and less, less and hope, hopefully that it like works towards extinction in that way, but you still had to keep it alive. You know, for those of us that are dealing with dogs, which we absolutely can't keep it alive, that advice might be harder to take in. Because like like Vinny jumped to, what if it's chasing behavior? Mm. What if it's wa- wanting to go and put its mouth on another dog? Like I can't I can't possibly put that on cue and allow it to be re- rehearsed in any capacity. So I have to work against it. So my strategies are I totally replay I have to come up with something else that sort of touches the do- dog in the same way. And I have to Wait, make okay. that available at those times. So it replaces that. Or I have to t- start telling them that they can't do it anymore anymore in a meaningful way it's just it's just a good conversation for us to be having because that particular conversation aired out more hi darling yeah aired out more like the question to the to the trainer whose strategy was to keep those things alive needed to be exactly what vinnie said like what if the pond was full of alligators right like i can't let my dog go swim in the pond anymore like what then what do i do i can't keep it alive what if it wants to go and chew, chew on other dogs or bite people or chase bus tires? Like, yo, I can't put it on cue. So I wish the conversation would have gone there, but um, I think that's as far as we can go with it where you guys can comment on it further.
0: I think it was with you Vinny. I can't remember, but I think it was with you Weren't we were discussing a few weeks ago about a dog. I think that you saw and you were questioning, you were like, what if this dog was able to just bite something was that you? I mean I don't know if it was you. I had a conversation with someone and they went to a home and the dog was um, I guess very reactive and trying to maybe bite strangers entering the house. and I think like the dog was generally okay, but when people started to move is when the dog started to target the person and um whoever i was talking to i should remember but but it wasn't any the per apparently not the person <laughs> the person that i was talking to was questioning well what if like i'm curious like what if like i was able i wouldn't do this but what if i was able to get uh the bite suit on the dog could bite that was it, something i would say yeah yeah that <laughs> no, sounds like I mean, something you would say or me no, i was it was more, it was just more about, uh, it was more like just questioning the idea. Yeah.
1: It's like the, the dog has that urge, right? It wants to put it somewhere. And so if I found the right place for, to put the urge, would it, would it urge less in the places that I didn't want it to be? If I could yeah. provide a clear context to satisfy that, yeah. does it show up less in the places that Out. I didn't want it?
0: I mean, like realistically, that sounds like a liability
2: nightmare, though. In that particular yeah. case, was, <laughs> you're gonna have yeah, to have a good just, waiver for that gonna, for that yeah, exercise. Just,
1: <laughs> those <laughs> of us that deal with like bitey dogs, we—that's a question that comes up a lot. Like somebody, I've got a a, a friend client right now that rescued a Malinois, and is Maldi, and like this question actually comes up a lot. Like, do you think I should do some bite work stuff with it? Would would that give it a place to to put it? And I never shy away from saying, "Yeah, play with it, man. Like develop a place to satisfy that because it needs an outlet for it. the they like the the trickier question is you have, um, and I've seen this this cut the right way and the wrong way, but you have a dog that's suspicious of people mm. and like wants to go and put its mouth on him. like it it really feels a certain way about him and it has those feelings, and it's that type of dog genetically. Like, should I actually enliven this in them? In an appropriate place so that they know where to put those feelings and hope then that they understand this isn't the place to put those feelings. And I have seen a lot of dogs that have been suspicious like that and were teetering on like being dangerous to give them the, the totally clear context in a safe way with skilled people to do that. And that it softened them in the places that you didn't want to.
0: Yeah, It feels like,
1: go ahead. No, no, go ahead. It just, it just feels like weird information to get them. Like, to to that would be hard for a person that wasn't thinking. Like, maybe we have learned to think about things, or, or if we've had experience where it goes the right way, it might be hard to tell. You know, the person that's ignorant to that, like, yeah, we should let that, like, live in them a little bit in the right place, and it could take away from where you don't want it. It could yeah. be like a, a hard thing for somebody to to see as valid.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, you know, I mean, like to Vin, what Vinny was saying, I was gonna say before is obviously, you know, you're asking a regular, your your maybe average dog owner to to do something like that it might be a little a little much. It's gonna be risky. It Was just like in the conversation um, of like, hey, what if the dog had that opportunity and and you know just reminded me when we when I was talking about this, that person it reminded me in my head about. Herding dogs, for example, you know, if they have the opportunity to a dog who wants to chase or um, stalk, if they have that opportunity to do so, you may see a reduction in some other behavior like chasing cars, which could get dangerous for them, could get yep. dangerous for the person that's walking them if they're not paying attention and they're invested in their cell phone while their dog is sniffing and then all of a sudden the car passes, yep. you know, so sometimes being able to channel that in one area can sometimes help in uh, another area. So that way the dog, like you were saying, has a clear picture. This behavior is appropriate in this context. And in this context, it isn't appropriate.
1: Yeah. And that's no secret. We like, everybody knows if you get a working dog, that's genetically yeah. you know, meant to be doing things, you have to find an outlet or they find it in the wrong places. Like shit goes wrong. That's why like with again, Malinois, like I, what's, what's been challenging for me over the last few years, raising Malinois is I've had more dogs at my house since my wife and she's got border collies and they like to run around. We've got a big property and, and it's very important for me when I bring a young dog in that I get them invested in the chase and the play in the fighting activities that I want with myself before I expose them to all the joy of chasing other dogs around. And if I don't get buy-in first with the activities that I want to serve my training program later, then it's really hard to get it later. And so I manage them a lot from those experiences early on, lest they learn to put that intensity into those things. And I get it here. And once I have the buy-in and the commitment here, then I feel more comfortable exposing them to them things. Mm-hmm. But certainly like, you know, any well-bred working dog, they need those outlets. And if you're getting them and you're not like giving them a place to put it, yeah, you're going to have problems. Yeah. The, 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 the trickier thing is like sometimes the quirky mood like that, the, the thing I just mentioned about a dog that's feeling insecure about people and thinking about putting their mouth on them, like that's genetic too. And those are feelings that are really in there. So do you actually let them go further into those feelings and, and then teach them how to resolve that through using their mouth? And does that make a difference on the other side of things? And I have seen that work too, but you're, you're the feelings that you you're unsure of that could cause the problems. You're actually letting them exist further in those like suspicious feelings the thing about like reward hierarchies and, and, and purposefully like going up and down in a strategic way, because you're, you're aimed at creating like the mental flexibility and the influence on arousal with, with dogs and using that as you then go further into environments where the stakes are higher. I'm thinking like protection sports specifically. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll speak to an experience that I had. Um, There's a trainer that would not want to let their dog enter into protection work um, until it would invest in a food catching game. And because the dog seeing the helper and then choosing to participate in some food catching thing let her feel that the dog was at a mental state then that when it entered into the helper work it was going to be composed enough in the right headspace not over aroused that it could then be obedient to the the training or it could the training would be would carry out the right way and so a lot of the training up to that point for this dog was toggling between reinforcers accepting lesser things in the face of the greater things and trying to like really keep it in a good headspace and then it was clear headed. It could go into the work and listen and and do all the things, but this dog was a well bred German Shepherd that had certain feelings about the man. Like on its own, it wanted to fight the dude, right? And a- everything in its lineage, all its great 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 grandfather all the way back, was the same thing, and. All its education, though, up to that point was these exercises and interactions that were aimed at blocking it from feeling those things. This is a game. This is about toggling between reinforcers. You go down there and you do that thing. But remember, you come back here and you get the toy. And then you do a little food chase or catch. And then you can go back and do that again. And all that stuff was kind of interfering with who the dog was, like, naturally, metaphysically, who they were deep down in their soul, it wanted to be a fighter. And I was, um, I put the the sleeve on and I was doing helper work for this dog. And I can, like, take instruction well and move my body in the appropriate way. So if somebody gives me instructions about how to behave with a dog as a decoy or helper, I can do it. And so I played my part and I moved in all the right ways that the dog could trust and felt good about and, and um, played a good helper decoy. And then the dog was pretty good, but me, my experience, I I didn't voice this. It would have only taken me. Like to get inside myself a little bit and hiss at that dog or do something twitchy in the sleeve or like be an animal myself. And that dog would have, totally forgot his training would have flipped into a mentality that he wasn't prepared for because he'd never been taught within that space. And it would have been the place that he wanted to be anyway. Right. So all of the stuff leading up to it got some sort of mood from the dog, but it's not the mood that the natural, that the animal naturally wanted to be in. And for me knowing how fragile that line was before between failure, how I could make that dog fail. Or if I behaved the appropriate way, I could uphold and honor the training. And I never want to like make somebody's training fail, but it was a realization for me. And it made me be less interested in all of the things that had happened leading up to it, because the dog wasn't complete on this end. It wasn't allowed to be who it is. And I felt that the The trainer didn't have a plan for training the dog in the place that it wanted to be. And so it tried to keep in a place that it needed it to be. So that the training the trainer wanted to do upheld itself, but it wasn't really where the dog wanted to be. It just made me think like, is that more or less respectful? Yeah, like is it better or worse blocking the dog from who they could be and who they desire to be?
0: Yeah.
2: It's it's like it seems and I'm not speaking on this trainer you're talking about because I don't know who it is. But from what you're saying, it's almost like a house of cards. And it's it's like this illusion of this thing. And then it's so easily to break. And your story reminds me of uh, my girlfriend's pitbull, actually, that I moved in with. Um, he was about three when I was introduced to him and she had never played tug with him. She had never done any rough tug play and in order to do that you needed to get you needed to get dirty like the dog was was Mm -hmm. tough like the dog is a type of dog that you'd be walking him in the woods and he would like bite onto tree branches and like just lock onto them and hang in the woods until he like died right yeah (laughs) so it's like I needed to get my hands dirty and and work that dog where he was at I couldn't like I couldn't bring him to the woods on a leash with like cookies and be like oh like you know, it's avoid all of these issues because once a, a twig falls, then like what you're saying, like the decoy gets twitchy, then then the dog is like, This is what I am. I don't know if, if I completely missed your story, but no, I, no,
1: that's, that's it. it. Yeah, you got but it. But that's yeah.
2: but that's exactly you know what what I see happening a lot. Yeah. Um and what's helped me morph the way the views that I have as a dog trainer is 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 it worse to just meet that dog where it's at play the game that it wants to play and then teach the dog rules in that arena yep or pretend that we're playing this whole other game together that the dog doesn't even want to be playing yeah <laughs> and like oh he's really good at this game like he's really good at baseball but like he wants to be in the UFC ring
1: yeah and he's uh, a shell of himself he's not yeah, actualized he's shell himself,
2: and then someone cuts him off on the road and he gets out and he's you know beating someone up in the middle of the street <laughs> yeah. because all he knows how to do is play t-ball because we pretended like oh he's just sweet little yeah. tommy he just wants to play baseball like no he doesn't he wants to go beat the yeah. shit out of someone yeah but like what jiu-jitsu. he needed was to go to a you know a jujitsu school to learn how to channel his anger and learn when to use it and then use it in a way that's appropriate rather that's than amazing. us pretending that he's not what he is
1: yeah beautifully said, man. Yeah, so beautiful. I,
2: totally under- I totally understand what you're saying uh yeah. with that yeah
1: and these are like for me. I felt a little critical of that experience that I had, and I just realized that I didn't want to go to those depths to try to block a dog from being who they are, just because I had some high idea of how I want my training to be conducted. Because at that point, it's not about the dog; it's about you and and your own desires. And so that yeah, felt, ideologies and yeah, it felt a little um, like untrue to me. And so
0: yeah, it's just. It's I really have a question. Did was that also because the person? This uh the person was maybe limited in either skill level or did they have limited knowledge in maybe understanding who their job no. is? No. Was this Personally. they were like, This is how I do it and this is what I'm gonna do?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They they were self-limiting. They limited themselves and said, This is the only way that I'm gonna approach some things. I'd say one last thing on that. I think it's important that some people will um, like i i consider myself like a complete trainer like certainly there are things i'm just not going to do because you just know right from wrong but um i absolutely want to be knowledgeable and skilled in as, as many ways as i can and then to be like anchored in a practice and then be dog centered like i what does this dog need and what's the best thing for them? And I want to be capable of, of meeting that. And I don't want to just take something absolutely off the table, just out of like, out of, because I say so, because I say I don't believe in it or something.
0: Mm.
1: I'm not sure that came out the best way, but I think you guys know what I'm saying. (laughs) But then there are, then there are, there's the other side of it. You can say, I'm just not open to this. I'm not going to do it and i was that was hard for me to understand but i do know this like somebody that that just says this is not something i'm going to do then they have to forge ahead in a different way right and they're going to come across something that works that's useful that the person that didn't limit themselves that or just stayed with the old way or just said yeah i'm just going to do the status quo i'm just going to keep going with what's available cuz it works or it's it's good enough that person then might never discover this uncharted territory because they always have these other options. But if you take some options off and you say, I just can't go there, it's going to force you to go down a route and you might uncover something that then me, I'm going to take from you. And I'm going to say, hell yeah, that shit works. It's good. And like the, the person that limits themselves, maybe they don't, whatever it might mean, reach like a, they might not be in a podium next to this competitor that's that's open to more. But this person might have some thanks to give to the person that uncovered a certain strategy or methodology that is very useful. And so sometimes it's good, you know, just to say like, dude, I broke my arm, right? You wouldn't believe all the different ways I'm discovering like open jars and tie my fucking shoes and put pants on and stuff with one arm. Like shit that I would never learn to do before. Mm-hmm. And I'm like really capable one arm man right now. Never would have never would have come across some of these things if it wasn't taken away from me. And so there's merit in that stuff. But it's also like not a, I'm on a little bit of a soapbox, but like a platform to be like self-righteous or th- say that it's for the dog or to cloak it in something that it's not. But, but certainly we're lucky that I think some people are staying a certain course and going for it. One of the more contemporary strategies is um, like, I mean, drive channeling has been around for a while, but even like switching between objects and implementing, like undermining possessiveness early on with certain dogs, I think that's really useful. Possessiveness is good. I have it in possession games, juicy, important stuff. Having a dog also that can mentally let go of one thing and trust to move to another thing, super cool, super useful. And if somebody didn't take the time to say that maybe there's a place for this and like carve the path. It wouldn't even be available to us. And me, who's still willing to take an outs and out, right? Because I said so. Even in the midst of your heightened feelings, an outs and out. And however I'm going to train that, I'm not going to make it about value transfer. Still, like benefits from like all the usefulness of teaching a dog what it means to switch from one thing to another. In particular, for my whistles from a decoy, helps me make that training a lot clearer for a young dog. Hell yeah, man!
0: Well, thank you for uh, for coming on. I always, you know, one thing that uh, as you're saying that it kind of was making me think. Like one thing that attracted me to like your work is you uh, don't limit yourself. You you learn from a lot of different disciplines, which is really uh, cool and and unique because I feel like I feel like there are a lot of uh, trainers that I follow or that I learn from who are not ver- like, if you like, it's funny, cause you listen to this podcast. you listen to some of your other podcasts? I, I have your healer um, uh, DVD that you have on your site and you, you constantly name all the people that you learned from or that you credit, you constantly are crediting people. And so it goes to show like the amount of uh, disciplines and methodologies and people you're learning from. Um, so,
1: we yeah, we have to,
0: yeah, yeah, no, I really, I really appreciate that. Uh, because you really, it just, it goes to show, you could see it in your work and everything you're talking about, you know, where it really seemed to have shaped what you do. So, so Thanks, thank buddy. you. We're where just, we're everyone? just truth
1: seekers, boys. We're just truth seekers.
0: <laughs> there you go. Let everyone know uh, where they can find you, website, or you have a couple websites with your businesses. So let everyone know.
1: Cool. Well, I'm I'm Forrest. My last name's Mickey. Um, I live out in Oregon. Uh, we got a gaggle of border collies and Malinois out here, and <laughs> we're just trying to keep them all satisfied. Um, I do some seminars on occasion. I travel less now, um, and usually I like to go places i haven't been or just support friends with what they're doing but um so that's neat Um, i go down and practice at the michael ellis school for dog trainers once in a while he's still got a facility down there there's any trainers out there that are looking for a place to rent that you want to put on your own event his facility is available for rent too and he's a super cool and gracious guy him and his wife carol um i have a couple of resources on my website tutorials that i've made um One of them is, um, foundations and commitment. I think it covers some of the things we talked about in here, this teaching dogs to behave around reinforcement. It's a little, if you were just the average, uh, everyday dog owner out there, I shouldn't say average. If you're the everyday dog owner out there, there's still some, it it can be a bit rigorous, some of it, but the beginnings of it are useful, like just teaching dogs to be patient around food and stuff. And then if you're aiming for something more, there's some particulars in there. I think that you could, you could also enjoy. And then, um, I really like the healing behavior. I think people kind of know me for a healing guy, and one of the reasons is that it's across many sports. Like any sport, has healing in it almost. And it can look different stylistically, but um, I don't know that that's what drew me to it. Is it, it went across a wide range of sports, and then and teaching like beautiful healing to a dog. It feels a little bit like poetry to me. There's something kind of magical in it. So if, if you've ever done it and experienced it, it can be quite moving. And then the healing behavior is one of those behaviors that you can see a lot of the principles and techniques that we talk about in in dog training, like present themselves. We're splitting behaviors down to finer pieces. Like we're, we're, we're making small things and adding them together to a greater whole. And that certainly is healing. It's everything to do with like a dog's motivation and their desire to be in some place and persist over a long period of time to some very precise um, thing that we've created and how you manage it over time and just tons of stuff that's associated with that's fun for us as dog trainers. Um, I'm married to a beautiful Australian gal. I met her when I was doing a seminar over in Australia. Uh, We make leashes together. Um, That's kind of fun. We just like to do things with our hands when we sit down and like veg out over a show. And so um, she's doing all the leash work right now when I'm one-handed. And then I got into a number of years ago, uh, like making clothing. So I used to um sew pockets on sweatshirts myself to accommodate all the dog shit that I was carrying around. And then um, one thing led to another. And now I, I manufacture some stuff um, and sell them. And it's kind of like iconic hooded sweatshirts right now. We got a flannel coming out in, a, in about half a year, but um just a small operation. But if you're looking for quality hoodie with pockets, you could buy one from me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's at Mickey wear, right?
1: That's Mickey wear. Yeah. Cool. That's it boys that's me.
0: Thank you sir. Thanks so much. Yeah, great. let's do it again fellas. Yeah, for sure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you liked the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed.